This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. No wonder I put off doing this one for so long. It's confusing. This is The Nine. So, I first heard of The Nine, or the Council of Nine, a group of aliens, or or gods, or alien gods, in a book that had nothing to do with aliens, at least not real ones. I first heard about it in the 1994 biography of Gene Roddenberry that was written by Joel Engel. It's the Gene Roddenberry biography that um, sort of lets everybody know what a sort of lecherous weirdo Roddenberry really was, who had no real clue as to what made Star Trek good and relied entirely on Gene Kuhn and DC Fontana to make him look like a genius. We'll get to that. Not the Star Trek geekery. We'll not get to that. We'll get to the other stuff. But first, wow, there's a lot going on here and a lot of moving parts. So a disclaimer that there will probably be some aspect that I overlook or some aspect that I don't overlook, but that you think needs more time. And I will definitely get emails about it, which we will address on the Saucer Afterlife episode following this one. For now, we better get to work. It begins, well, that's debatable, as we'll see. Let's begin in the 1950s with a guy named Andrea Puharik. I think I'm saying that right. If any, in any case, that's how I'm saying it. Puharik was born in 1918 in Chicago to uh, Croatian parents, um, Croatian immigrant parents. They came over a few years before. Uh, he was uh, Karel, uh, K-A-R-E-L, but his parents called him Andrea, which um, was sort of a nickname. Um, good student, went to Northwestern University in Chicago, was attached to the Army uh, during World War II, their specialized training program, degrees in philosophy and pre-med, became a medical doctor, and then um, continued working for the military. In the 1950s, he was part of the Army Medical Corps, and uh, then he got into stuff in chemical weapons, chemical weapons area in um, Edgewood Arsenal and Fort Detrick, Maryland. And um, it's interesting his career sort of veers into an interest in psychic abilities, people with, uh, with, with parapsychological abilities. And during the 1950s, he becomes involved with all of this stuff. He also, this isn't quite mind control stuff, but also worked to create devices that would block extremely low frequencies uh, from affecting people's brains, which is I suppose that's basically a tinfoil hat, which is which is fine, but probably works a little bit better. But what he's mostly known for, and he did other stuff too, um, stuff with water molecules separating hydrogen and oxygen from water molecules, supposedly. But um, a lot of things that he's known for are mind stuff. So, and psychic stuff. So we have a military guy interested in psychic stuff, working in chemical weapons research, at least part of the time, right around the same time as the MK Ultra experiments were gearing up. And I know, 
I know, I know, I know, I know that I default to this a little too much, but I'm always suspicious of this overlap. Or rather, I guess I'm wary when I see an overlap between supposed paranormal or ufological stuff and military or intelligence shenanigans. Uh, I just, that's a connection. I was like, my ears perk up and I'm like, oh yeah, clearly this is a disinformation kind of thing going on. But I'm not the only one to have these sort of suspicious feelings about this sort of thing. In a 1999 article in Fortean Times, a writer had this to say about Buharak. Recent research has revealed Buharak to have a distinctly sinister side. As an army doctor in the 1950s, he was deeply involved with the CIA's notorious MK Ultra mind control project. He, together with the infamous Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, experimented with a variety of techniques to change or induce actual thought processes, even to creating the impression of voices in the head. These techniques included the use of drugs, hypnosis, and beaming radio signals directly into the subject's brain. So, there's some of this going on. There are these connections. Now, this article makes some other claims that we might come back to later when we have a fuller understanding of the nine and what they're talking about. But for now, let's jump in to some of this narrative and watch it unfold. Also, a word on sources. There's a book about Puharic uh, called Memories of a Maverick by H.G.M. Hermans. Maybe. A lot of websites list Puharic as the author, but the description, and, and this is wonderfully over the top, says, quote, this book is about the richness the excitement, the ecstasies, and the agonies of the life of Dr. Andrea Puharic, authoress, which isn't a word you see a lot, H.G.M. Hermans. And the cover says, by H.G.M. Hermans. It was published in the Netherlands, and there's an English translation reprinted on Yuri Geller's website. We'll mention who Yuri Geller is later, uh, probably, if you don't know. Uh, there's a link to it in the show notes. It's a valuable resource, resource but it's, it's written... In the first person, uh, by somebody, this woman had s some kind of relationship with Puharic. So it's it's kind of, there's some interpersonal stuff, but it's it's good. So in the 1950s, Puharic, in addition to working for the army, is researching psychic phenomenon and channeling. And we know about channeling from various contactees who received messages sort of beamed into their brains, supposedly. And he starts working with a mystic named Dr. D.G. Vinod, 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 something like, I've heard it pronounced every different way, V-I-N-O-D. One night in 1952 at uh, Puharic's New York base of operations, Vinod begins channeling. It's 9 p.m. and at the stroke of nine, his voice changes tone and this comes out. M calling, we are nine principles and forces, personalities if you will, working in complete mutual implication. We are forces, and the nature of our work is to accentuate the positive, the evolutional, and the teleological aspects of existence. By teleology, I do not mean the teleology of human derivation in a multidimensional concept of existence. Teleology will be understood in terms of a different ontology. To be simple, we accentuate certain directions as will fulfill the destiny of creation. We propose to work with you in some essential respects with the relation of contradiction and contrariety. We shall negate and revise part of your work, by which I mean the work as presented to you. The point is that we want to begin altogether at a different dimension, though it is true that your work has itself led up to this. 
I deeply appreciate your dedicatedness to the great cause of peace, which is fulfillment of finitesimal existence. Peace is not warlessness. Peace is the integral fruitage of personality. We have designed to utilize you and thus to fulfill you. Peace is a process and will be revealed only progressively. You have it in plenty. I mean the patience that is so deeply needed in this magnificent adventure. But today, at the moment of our advent, the most eventful and spectacular phase of your work begins. It's not often that you can hear an actual example of a philosophy textbook being vomited out at you. But there we go. Uh, Words that I have not heard since I was uh, a freshman in college. So some straight dictionary definitions, just to be clear, teleology, the explanation of phenomena in terms of the purpose they serve rather than of the cause by which they arise. So what's this about? Well, let's explain it in terms of what it's doing rather than where it came from. And ontology is the branch of metaphysics, the dictionary says, dealing with the nature of being. Other words in that selection are um, uh, nonsense in some ways, or it's weird. These are not words that are used in that way. It's very strange, but that's the basic setup. A council of nine super beings channeling information to Puharic's associates. And there were extraterrestrial overtones to some of this as well. He's also working with a Dutch psychic named Peter Herkos, and Herkos had this vision. On August 23rd, 1957, after Herkos had been administered the preparation of the mushroom, he slipped into a semi-sleep state in about 20 minutes and began to talk. He saw what he called a miracle in the sky. When asked what this miracle was, he was not capable of giving it finite description. These are the words he used. There is going to be a miracle in the sky. It is coming. I cannot tell you precisely what it is, except that I see it as an earth ball. It is in the sky, and everybody in the whole world can see it. When asked if this meant a planet, he said no. When asked if this meant a comet, he said no. I asked him all the possibilities I could think of in the way of natural aerial phenomena. I even asked him if this was going to be a flying saucer. Again, he said no. I must say, in reference to his statement, which is very vague, it is difficult to relate it to any specific event. The only event that seems to bear any resemblance to the words that Peter uttered was the launching of the Russian Earth satellite on October 4th, 1957. But Peter himself feels that it is yet to come. So, not the nine in this case, but an alien presence, maybe. And you'll notice the mention of mushrooms. Puharik was working with psychedelic substances at the time, and one of these days we'll do an episode about that whole strand of theorizing between hallucinogens and ufology. But uh, Herkos was not a guy who was naturally inclined to jump to the conclusion that things were aliens, despite what he saw in this vision. But then he had another vision. Andrea, you know that my powers are my powers. I don't believe in spirits or ghosts, and I always thought that flying saucers were baloney, but believe me, Andrea... I swear on my baby's eyes, I've been awakened many nights by beings from flying saucers. Last night again, I went down to the rocks by the ocean, and at about four in the morning, all of a sudden there appeared a flying saucer over the water about a hundred meters away. It was about fifteen meters across, and shaped like a lens. It was all transparent. I could see through it like through glass, but it glowed all kinds of changing colors. Here, I will draw exactly what I saw. Peter then quickly made a sketch of a biconvex-shaped object at its interior. 
he was quite emphatic that the power plant was in the center of the craft. As this saucer hovered over the water, Peter continued, it lit up everything around it, including the spot where I sat on the rock. Then suddenly there were two beings standing near me. They were small and looked very old with young bodies. They wore tight-fitting outfits that looked like leather motorcycle suits. They just looked at me. No word was spoken. But I felt that they were telling me things, and I understood it. I don't remember anything that was told me. Suddenly, they were in the saucer that had come close by. Then there was fire and smoke, and the saucer went away silently. You have to believe me, Andrea. That's what I saw. I didn't want to tell you, but it's driving me crazy. I was also fascinated to learn that a few years after the Vinod channeling, Puharik became affiliated, associated with Charles and Lillian Lothhead, who we met way back in our first year or so. They were the ones who were mixed up with the failed prophecy stuff from Dorothy Martin uh, from the book When Prophecy Fails, as well as hooking up with George Hunt Williamson. Puharik received a letter from them containing a message received by their group's channeler. M calling. At the moment of our advent, December 31st, 1952, your most spectacular phase of work began. We are nine principles and forces. The nature of our work is to accentuate certain directions as will fulfill the destiny of creation. We used the body or brain of Dr. V. We can and are using other bodies also. So if we take this at face value, which I'm not saying we should, but if we do, Charles and Lillian and their channel were getting a message from the same being that contacted Dr. Vinod, and they presumably didn't have inside information and knowledge about that happening. So the similarities, M calling and things like that, and I'm not sure what the M stands for, somebody out there probably knows, those similarities are supposed to be, you know, an indicator that this is the same being. But if you listen to that message and you listen to the earlier message, which had words like teleology and ontology and other word forms that are not quite right, it's a different tone. Does the alien super being have a better grasp on the English language a couple years later when he talks to Charles and Lillian and their people than he did earlier when he talked to Dr. V? Who knows? Is it possible that this isn't a legit thing? Maybe. Now, Puharik continues his research throughout the the 50s and and 60s and into the 70s and and eventually establishes uh, a lab in Ossining, New York. And Puharik was an interesting guy, like I said, and there's a lot beyond the scope of this episode. He was most known in the 60s and 70s for his work with Yuri Geller, who was an Israeli psychic if, if you've heard of him, which you probably have, maybe he's the guy who would bend spoons with his mind. Probably the most well-known psychic of the late 20th century, perhaps even the 21st. Puharik wrote a, uh, a book about him. I don't know. I don't track psychic popularity as closely as I should. But uh, Yuri Geller is, is one of the most well-known psychics around. Now, in Ossining, New York... Puharik would gather around him a number of people to help with these experiments and these channelings and things, including a British guy named Sir John Whitmore and a woman named Phyllis Schlemmer. Schlemmer was a longtime psychic medium, and Whitmore had organized several psychic-oriented events which brought him into Puharik's orbit. 
Now, while the book Memories of a Maverick gets into this period, I'm sort of shifting sources to a book called Briefing for the Landing on Planet Earth by British writer Stuart Holroyd. This book came out in various editions under a couple different names in the late 1970s. And Holroyd had written on topics like this before, and Puharek thought he might be, or actually I think it was more Whitmore, um, thought Holroyd would be a good sort of sympathetic yet still able to be slightly objective author that they could use as a conduit to explain what was going on. And he was not the only such potential conduit that they sought out, as we'll see. So unlike a lot of contactees that we've encountered, you don't have the channel writing their own book yet. You have the idea that we've got these channeled messages, we've got a message that we want to get out. How do we do that? Well, let's find somebody who has this pre-existing access to an audience via, you know, a publishing career or being a well-known screenwriter, as we'll see a bit later on. And let's use that. So Holroyd introduces the whole setup and notes there's a number of people, men and women in this house in Austin, New York. There's a large Faraday cage in which the channeling takes place because it blocks out the wrong kinds of signals and everything like that, cuts down on interference. In fact, there's a whole lot of details and names of people involved in this story. It's just a series of first names of people who are asking questions during channeling sessions. Now, I don't want to sort of clutter the narrative up with a lot of easily mixed up names of people. So I'm going to try to keep this as stripped down to the basics as I can. And as you already may be able to tell, this is a story that unfolds over time, has a lot of interesting, intricate detail. We could do, I'm not kidding, three months worth of shows about the messages that will be transmitted through these channels, but I'm going to do my best to keep it a little more compact than that. I'm not sure I'm doing a great job so far. So back to Holroyd and this book. He tells the reader what's going on in a startlingly straightforward manner. Since March 1974, they had been in constant contact with the management, the extraterrestrial intelligences, and they now had tape recordings of over 100 hours of communications with them. The management is a great name for a collective of extraterrestrial or extradimensional super beings. So Holroyd is sort of given the job of, of investigating and presenting the story of these folks and uh, of Puharek's sort of associates and what they're finding. And so he takes a bunch of the recordings, goes home and starts listening to these channeled messages. And we're going to get to some of these channeled messages. Don't worry. But he's listening to them in his study to the utter sort of bemusement and bewilderment of his family. I received some odd looks and comments from my family in the course of the next few days. On several occasions, my wife or one of the children came into my study while I was listening, and on hearing the queer sounds emanating from my hi-fi, quite forgot the purpose of the call. I'm regarded by friends and family as a fairly rational, intellectual type, and for me to be listening to communications with alleged space gods was considered amusingly offbeat. They soon became used to it, though, as I became used to the initial strangeness of the tapes. The strangeness is in the language, the syntax, the tone of the communications delivered through the channel, the medium Phyllis V. Schlemmer, and also sometimes in the manner of the communicants, who are mainly John and Andrea, which can be embarrassingly deferential and awed. 
So in listening, Holroyd soon becomes convinced that the messages are in some way genuine, or at least they're not a conscious hoax. It's not a scam. It's not a grift. It's something real and strange and somewhat unexplainable. And he also, speaking of unexplainable, explains or at least describes the way this channeling process works and why it would be possibly difficult to fake. What we are asked to believe happens when Phyllis is in deep trance is that she leaves her body and that Tom, the spokesman for the communicators, takes over control of her body and her vocal mechanisms. What we see happen is certainly consistent with this explanation, and the content of the communications is certainly such as to make nonsense of any simplistic skeptic's suspicion that it is all clever play-acting on Phyllis's part. But neither the content, nor the observed events, nor the combination of the two conclusively proves that this is in fact what happens. So we have to consider whether we have available any way round a simple believe-it-or-not option to ask whether there is any other evidence we can call on which may at least affect the balance of probabilities, even if it does not constitute a final elucidation of the truth of the matter. This is kind of a nuanced approach to this, more nuanced than we sometimes see in contactee literature, perhaps because it's not being written by the contactee themselves, which is which is interesting. It's it's real, but we don't know how it works, what the truth of it is. So can we find a way beyond just a is it real or not explanation, which I, I like. It's not so much um, is it genuine or hoax rather than just what is it? So after this introductory chapter, Holroyd talks about how Puharic and Schlemmer and Whitmore sort of come together. Whitmore had, as I said before, been active in promoting talks and lecture series in Britain and the United States, I believe, that Puharic had been involved in. Puharic was impressed with Whitmore. Whitmore was impressed with Puharic. Um, Phyllis uh, Schlemmer had a slightly different uh, different path. She had a TV show where she did psychic readings. She did psychic readings at events and things. She was a she was a working psychic, um, I guess you could say. And she seeks out Puharic uh, for advice and help with some situations that she um, that we, with a person we will get into in a, in a second. So we've got these three people brought together, and they have a. A job. They have a goal. And Holroyd explains in very brief terms what this goal is. To put it baldly and boldly, this book is the story of a scientist, a psychic, and an aristocrat who were brought together in order to help bring mankind through a time of crisis. So basically, at this point, it's clear that this is going to be, at least to some degree, a fairly standard contactee sort of approach. We have received messages from beings more advanced than us about how we here on Earth can fix our crummy situation. So Phyllis Schlemmer has with her, brings with her a young man named Bobby, who was sort of starting down the road of becoming a psychic healer. Bobby begins to channel a being named Corian, C-O-R-E-A-N, which was, Holroyd explained, actually not a being, but that was the name of a whole civilization, and the one of them was speaking through Bobby. And through these messages from Corian through Bobby, we start to get a hint of the dangers facing humanity. Man is confused. The earth is in great trouble. We come with love to help. It will be difficult for you to prove to your man of our existence 
There will be many things occur prior to our coming and at our coming as proof, so that we may be allowed to help. Bobby is one. There will be many who do not believe. You must help find a way to prove to them we come with love, and there have been many times we have tried and failed, for man does not believe, only what he can see. We will show many things. Soon after this, Phyllis begins channeling a being named Tom, and Tom and Corian inform Phyllis and John and Puharak that they are to be conduits for the messages that these beings from beyond will transmit. And as time goes on, Bobby becomes less stable psychologically, and eventually he'll leave the group, and Phyllis will be briefly incapacitated by a heart attack, uh, but psychic healing will save her. But the three core figures, Puharak, John Whitmore, Phyllis Schlemmer, are, are committed. And the aliens, as they begin to accept that these three are committed to transmitting this message, um, begin to teach them a large number of things, particularly one evening where there were supposedly a large number of invisible aliens in the room, uh, and each of them would, you know, transmit answers to various questions. And they learned a number of things. And we're just going to take a look at a selection of things that they learned. That a certain chemical element taken in very minute doses has the property of heightening psychic powers. Both the element and its organic source were identified by name. But as it is a poison and has to be handled with great care, I have judged it advisable to withhold these details from the present narrative. Hmm, information gained from the aliens or information gained from Puharek's 1950s experiments in psychedelia? What's another thing they learned? That the structure of Christianity is in decline and will continue to decline, but there are groups within Christianity who disagree with the dogmatic aspects of the religion and will preserve its essential core. Ah, they learn from the aliens the same thing people have been saying about Christianity and every other sort of major structured religion since each of those religions existed. What else did they learn? That the management have people attempting to do the work that is necessary, placed in all the governments of the major countries of the world, except the Chinese, and that the U.S. and Russian governments have had a secret agreement for many years to suppress information about UFO sightings and contacts, but they were now going to be put under increasing pressure by people demanding release of official information. My God, disclosure is right around the corner, isn't it? And why not China? Why is China left out? This is... This is the mid-1970s. Mao's gone. You know, it's a new day over there, man. So, anything else they learned? That the telephone lines of the Ossining House were tapped by government agencies. But there was no need to worry, because we know how to erase. So, the things they're learning are things that by the mid-1970s were not, if not widely known in ufological and contact circles or widely discussed, not outrageous. You know, Christianity isn't what it used to be. Um, the government's tapping the phone lines and hiding UFO information. These these are not revelations, are they? I mean, they weren't to me. Maybe they were to the people there in that house in Ossining. Maybe they were to Stuart Holroyd. But to anybody who'd been at all immersed in the field of ufology or flying saucerology since the 1940s, there's there's really not a lot that is new here. But they also learn that a landing will take place sometime in the near future. Tom and his friends are coming to Earth. 
The landing would be a physical, visible event that would take place all over the planet over a period of nine days. Many different types of crafts would land and beings would descend from them and be among men. Some would remain on Earth as teachers, and some would go on after a while to work in other areas, for then the planet Earth would have begun to evolve in its truest sense. Thinking of the landing as the second coming, John asked, will the beings that remain collectively represent the Christ, or will the Christ be among them? You must remember that all of you and all of us have the Christ within us, Tom said. It will be a collective consciousness. Man is now coming out of the true dark ages of the planet and becoming aware of the existence of other life forms in other parts of the universe. Men have always assumed that there was something sitting up there taking care of their problems, but they also assumed through their ego that they were the only existence and that this being called God was only concerned with them. Man now has to understand that there are other forms of life and that the universe does not revolve or evolve just around man. Again, if you've listened to our episodes about contactees, which I know you have, this isn't groundbreaking. This isn't even weird, really. This is fairly standard stuff. Now, I've got a theory as to why this got some traction, and it did, at least traction with people who pay attention to ufo stuff especially in a critical way i think the involvement of puharik who was a fairly well-known figure helped promote the writings of the council of nine i think the fact that it came out in the 1970s or it began in the 1970s was significant i think if these channelings would have emerged in the late 50s early 60s when you had ashtar around and everything i think it would have been a bit more sort of lost in the shuffle of things, but you've got a well-known psychic researcher who's connected to one of the foremost psychics or supposed psychics in the world talking about this stuff. It's going to have an impact. People are going to pay attention. Um, Even if Puharik hadn't been connected with military and intelligence things, just his standing as a researcher into parapsychology would have gotten people who would not necessarily be paying attention to a bunch of contactee stuff, paying attention to this. But I think it's time for a quick break, and then we'll come back to the nine. We'll be back in a week with the Saucer Afterlife responding to your questions and comments about this episode and getting a reaction from Saucer Life contributor Samantha on this very odd story. In another bit of news, I'll be giving one of the presentations at this year's Strange Realities Conference, which will be held both in person in Nashville and streaming online, which is which is great for those who can't make it to Nashville. It will be October 15th, 16th, and 17th, and you can check out all the details at strangerealitiesconference, all one word, dot com. You can check out past episodes and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can also support us through the link in the show notes. We greatly appreciate all the support, both financial and moral, that we've received. Um, And I realized as I'm recording this that the day after this comes out, um, one day after it comes out, is the fourth anniversary of the first Saucer Life episode going live. So four years of this. I... um, I wasn't sure it would last four months, and the fact that it's lasted four years is a testament to um, 
something. I'm not sure, but I think it's, it's, it's the great audience and the great sort of interaction and feedback we get that keeps us going. As always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, and you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. And The Saucer Life, as always, is available anywhere you can find podcasts if, for some reason, you're listening to this now at a place where you can't find podcasts. So the aliens are coming. Our people, our trio of, of contactees are invested in sharing this message of preparing humanity to be visited by these beings. But there's a lot more to learn. And Phyllis learns quite a bit in another encounter. None of our people ever go on a spaceship, but in this encounter, Phyllis is sort of leaving her body and going into space, and she's freaking out a bit, but she learns some vital information about what is going on. Her distress increased, but when John assured her that her physical body was protected, she became calmer. Then suddenly her speech became more fluent as she explained what she was being told about their commitment. We were here before. That was in the beginning. Then we incarnated for some reason or other, not in this particular position, but in order to get the feel of the planet. We lived here, each of us, maybe three or four times before, but it was to get the pulse. But at the same time, we performed a service. I don't quite understand what's so important about this planet. It's like really bad. It's holding back the universe. That's what it's doing. This planet is holding back the universe. So then we made this commitment. This is something you're going to have to help me understand. We committed to the beings here that would open up the consciousness of the physical beings that live here. We're physical beings, but at the same time, we're not. None of us are. Andrea asked, so we're committed to open up people's consciousness? For what purpose? Phyllis relayed the answer. Well, because this planet has lagged behind, it hasn't progressed like it's supposed to. They say that if this planet does not progress, you see, beneath this planet, there are other different civilizations, and this planet is stuck. Yes, it's a break on the whole system, Andrea said. So again, this is common contactee talk. Earth is the delinquent. Earth is in the cosmic kindergarten. Phyllis also explains that the Nine are a governing council. So they're not the only aliens, but they are the ones who are in charge. At the same time as they're getting all this information, the trio wonders how they, just three people, can possibly help fix this massive problem. The energy that surrounds you, and which comes from us, because you are our channels, creates a vortex that then radiates out, and then can raise the consciousness of this planet. Even though you feel it is an impossible task, it is not so. You chose this situation. You willingly gave of yourselves to come back to this dense, heavy earth. You have reincarnated on this planet several times. Not because it was necessary, but because you needed to understand and to get the feel of this planet in order to raise its level of consciousness. This energy, as I explained, creates a vortex of love and peace and harmony. Everything needs an energy base. We are energy, and we need you to channel our energy. So they're not just channeling information. They are channeling information which is also energy, if I understand it correctly. This idea of, of channeled energy being important is a recurring theme throughout the rest of Holroyd's book. 
we also get into religion and the hidden secret I roll alien history of Earth. One day, Puharik asks about Jesus. This is correct, but we do not call him Jesus Christ. We call him the Nazarene. He was one of us. His inspirational work and healings were inspired by us, and his energy was supplied by us. We had great hopes at that time, but then you made a god of him, as you made a god of many. This will not happen this time. There will not be one, but there will be a collection of beings who will raise the consciousness of the planet. So this is something that bugs me about this. They don't call him Jesus Christ. That's, that's you know, Greek names, you know, things like that. But they call him the Nazarene, which is also, you know, an earthbound geographical description. Jesus was, you know, traditionally from Nazareth. So why abandon one sort of, well, this is just what you humans call him in your error and, you know, just call him the name from the town he's from. That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, But speaking of gods, eventually we learn who Tom really is. We know that there is a concern in your minds about the relation between you and the Nine. As you know, I'm the spokesman for the Nine, but I also have another position which I have with you in the project. I will try to give you names so you can then understand in what you work and who we are. I may not pronounce who I am in a manner which you would understand because of the problem in the being's brain, but I will explain so that the doctor perhaps will understand. I am Tom, but I am also Harmarchus. I am also Harenkar. I am also known as Tum, and I am known as Atum. That's right. The Nine are Egyptian gods, and have manifested as other godlike figures throughout human history. So we're getting into ancient alien territory a bit. Were the ancient gods really aliens? Well, this is saying, yeah, kind of. Um, And there is an ancient aliens TV show connection to this that we will talk about as we finish up, because I don't want to talk about it earlier because I put it off because I hate ancient aliens, both um, mostly content wise, but also as a television show, I find it incredibly dull and repetitive. So the nine are the Egyptian gods and some other gods. They are a pantheon, but they're really an extraterrestrial pantheon rather than a divine pantheon. Tom suggests that, quote, another thing they should do was plan to make a film that would make ordinary people aware of what was going on in the universe and make them ask questions. In 1975, they made an attempt at this, reaching out to Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. Now, this is 1975, and Star Trek is is dead in a lot of ways. The original three-year run of the series is over. It's picking up massive numbers of fans, more fans than it ever had in the original run, through syndication there in the 1970s as local UHF independent stations are desperate for content to fill their time with. But Gene Roddenberry has not had a hit since Star Trek. He can't get anything to really work. Shows like Genesis 2 and Questor had sort of died on the vine after sometimes, I think in the case of Genesis 2, there was a a really lousy pilot that everybody laughed at. 
he couldn't really get anything going, at least not to the degree that uh, that Star Trek had been. And he was, by 1975, back working for Paramount Pictures. Um, he'd been contracted to develop a Star Trek motion picture. Paramount knew where the money was. The money was in Star Trek. The money was not in anything else Gene Roddenberry could come up with. So he's starting to work on that. But that's going to be a long and difficult process that involves almost the creation of a new second Star Trek TV series that then falls apart when Paramount decides not to start its own network. And then that gets sort of revamped into what will eventually be 1978's Star Trek The Motion Picture. But in 1975, when Paramount is sort of saying, hey, we want a Star Trek movie, Gene Roddenberry had gone through a few years of his main income being speaking to college groups about Star Trek, and that doesn't pay very well. In late 1975, uh, according to his biographer and, and the people his biographer, Joel Engel, uh, interviewed, Gene Roddenberry is telling his secretary, look, if I don't get 25 grand pretty quick, I'm going to they're going to foreclose on me. I'm going to lose the house. So when Sir John Whitmore comes to Gene Roddenberry and says, we want you to write a screenplay based on the teachings of the nine and our experience with the nine and all of that, and we will pay you twenty five thousand dollars. Roddenberry is not thrilled with the prospect. Um, He mostly likes writing about his own ideas, like writing about his own ideas. Uh, but, you know, 25 grand is 25 grand, right? The bank doesn't care where the money comes from. Well, as long as it's legal, but, you know, he needs to save his house. So he agrees to do this. As part of the sort of preparation process for all this, he will have some meetings with the nine. He will ask some questions and get some answers channeled back to him, as we'll see a bit later on. But the screenplay that he eventually comes up with and which is eventually rejected by Whitmore and his associates, has long been a subject of a lot of speculation for some reasons we'll get into and some misunderstandings and some things that kind of get blown out of proportion. Anyway, Engel's biography of Roddenberry has a synopsis of that first draft script, and it is not great. And it's kind of weird because it's what today we would call very meta. It's about a writer-producer who had had a hit series called Time Zone. And this writer-producer named Jim McNorth in the script is sort of eking out an existence, traveling the convention circuit, speaking to obsessed fans of the show Time Zone. Meanwhile, he's carrying on a number of affairs and is um, not having a good relationship with his wife, who suspects he is having these affairs because he is unable to perform sexually. Yes, that's right. Desperate for money, McNorth is approached by an organization called Second Genesis, which is in contact with the Nine, and to write a screenplay to sort of make people prepared for the arrival of the nine. So McNorth writes this screenplay and he's never actually convinced of the psychic abilities of these people or the existence of the nine, but he's intrigued by it. McNorth writes the script. Everybody is happy. However things work out, he and his wife end up madly in love again. His wife ends up pregnant and everybody lives happily ever after. 
Sir John Whitmore rejects this script since it is not a script about the nine and how Earth is going to be prepared, but it's basically Gene Roddenberry working out his various midlife crises, almost beat for beat, taking their $25,000 and basically, you know, telling his own story about poor him and maybe the aliens will fix things. But his contract called for another $25,000 for a rewrite, and he is asked to do this. Roddenberry, by this time, is kind of sick of the whole thing, and the Star Trek stuff is gearing up again. So he passes the job off to his assistant, John Povel, who Roddenberry gives $4,000 of the $25,000 to do all the work. This is a recurring theme in this biography of Gene Roddenberry, but this is not the Gene Roddenberry bashing podcast. Um, I should start one of those. But we're, we're going to come back to Roddenberry's connection with the Nine and what people have thought about it. Um, actually, this has to do with that Ancient Aliens episode that's coming up, because there's a lot of overstating the influence that Roddenberry's experience working on the script had on Star Trek. And some of it is simple exaggeration. Some of it has been sort of promulgated and helped along by the way that the Ancient Aliens episode that we're going to discuss later about the Nine presented the story of Roddenberry's work with the organization and what he did for them and what he may have learned. So we'll sort of put a pin in Gene Roddenberry for now. Throughout all the time this stuff with the Nine was going on, Puharik was also working with other people. Andrea had continued to work independently with other psychics throughout the period of the Tom communications, one of whom had channeled some highly complex and interesting scientific material, again, allegedly from an extraterrestrial source. Now, I'm not sure exactly, but I suspect that who Holroyd is talking about here is our old friend Greta Woodrow, author of On a Slide of Light and Memories of the Future and of many sort of goofy newsletters that we've covered in various segments over the last couple years. We know from the Greta Woodrow episode that we talked about that um, Woodrow did sort of have her breakthrough in her communications with the aliens through work with Dr. Puharik, or Dr. P, as she called him. So is that who Holroyd is talking about? Very possibly. Puharik was also working with a guy named Jim Hertek at this point, and Jim Hertek becomes somebody that Jacques Vallée talks to in his book Messengers of Deception when looking into this mysterious order of Melchizedek that seems to have its fingers in all sorts of paranormal and ufological and paralogical, parapsychological um, pies at the time. Hertek talks to Valet a lot about ascended masters preparing humanity for something, which is kind of an overlap with what we're seeing from the Nine. So whether or not this is a giant conscious effort to do something, we are seeing a sort of coordinated effort to prepare humanity for contact, for connection, for some kind of revelation from or with or to something that is otherworldly or other dimensional in some way. So back to Holroyd's book, he segues into the trio's adventures or their missions in the Middle East. And this 
is a lot. And I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail here because it's very contextual to various crises between the Israelis and the Palestinians during the 1970s. And this is a complicated enough story without bringing in the history of the modern Middle East. But just know that Tom was predicting war in the Middle East and then generally, when wrong, would simply imply that the future was always in flux. And the missions that he sends the three on throughout the Middle East to channel energy at various strategic places have been keeping the peace. But it's in this part of the book that we start to get a bit more of the ancient alien influence on the material channeled by the Nine. To contemplate the various strands that relate the trio and their work to Israel is to be persuaded of the validity of the Jungian theory of synchronicity. Ostensibly, they first went there because Israel was the potential flashpoint for a war situation which could engulf the world. But Andrea had worked there before with Yuri Geller, who of course is an Israeli. And the Israeli people, according to Tom, were genetically related to the space people, particularly those of the civilization of Huva. Also, Israel had been the place where the last attempt to upgrade human consciousness had been made through the agency of the Nazarene, Jesus Christ. And the stress in the teachings of Tom on the importance of humility, love, and service is reminiscent of Christian beliefs, just as a great deal of the symbolism and some of the dramatic themes of the communications are reminiscent of esoteric Christianity and Judaism of the Book of Revelation and the Kabbalah. Israel brings into focus interrelates and catalyzes many of the disparate themes of the communications, so much so that one is tempted to speculate that the trio's being drawn there when they were, at a time when their work needed to be given focus, direction, and coherence, was not a fortuitous, but a synchronistic event. So, we have alien civilizations seeding civilizations on planet Earth. We also get this little tidbit. They had reserved a two-room suite at the Sheraton, a tall, modern hotel overlooking the Mediterranean at the northern end of Tel Aviv, and they made this their base during the three weeks of their stay, using a hired car to get around the country and generally looking and behaving like tourists. According to Tom, in the first communication they held, there was no need for dissimulation because the Israeli authorities were aware of their presence and some of the leaders knew of their true mission and were grateful to them. So here we have confirmation, supposedly, that the nine are in contact with the governments of the nations of the earth, including Israel, which makes sense because the Israeli people, the Hebrew people, are the descendants of the Huva civilization, which I keep thinking sounds like somebody from Boston saying Hoover, but um, it's not. It's H-O-O-V-A. So Holroyd then goes into the sort of outline of what he calls the history of and role of the Jews using the framework of known biblical history to, quote, elucidate the information volunteered by Tom over that period of time where he was communicating through Phyllis. So once upon a time, the land of Mesopotamia was inhabited by one of the groups that migrated from a civilization, it says here a nuclear civilization called Aksu. And then about 2000 BCE, the Huva space civilization, quote, launched another attempt to upgrade the planet Earth, and they chose as the most promising group to work through the tribe living in Mesopotamia. Basically, Abraham of Ur, it says, you know, Father Abraham, initiated the experiment to produce an improved stock of human beings who would, quote, lead the planet into its next evolutionary stage. Basically, 
they are making a hybrid race between the Hoover and the humans on Earth. And, quote, the children of Abraham were the first to be so implanted. And they would be eventually intermarried, interbred with all the nations and races in the world to produce a more highly evolved genetic strain, they say. This would eventually raise human consciousness. The covenant between Yahweh and Abraham, recorded in the book of Genesis, is actually the agreement and the plan to do this. Um, the idea of, of Abraham's descendants spreading over the earth was, as mentioned in Genesis 17, was an explanation of, of how the Huva essence would be interwoven with the fabric of humanity as a whole. But the, uh, the Jews, quote, forgot their role and their cosmic origins and became an inbred ethnic group, forced in upon themselves by the struggle for survival in harsh physical conditions and by the enmity and resentment of other people who did not understand them. So in the Old Testament, sort of the recurring theme there in the Hebrew Bible is, is the Hebrew people rebelling against Yahweh and, and Yahweh bringing them back, you know, the prophets being sent to, to sort of preach the sort of return to the way things should be. In this telling, it's the Huva who have to uh, who have to intervene, and it, it just sort of follows the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and um, and and sort of places all of this in the context of the Huva having had their plan sort of go awry. It's it's very strange, and it's it's very different from a lot of the uh, of the anti. Semitic channeled contactee stuff that we see from time to time. In, in this case, I mean the, um, the, the the nine material has been sort of pointed out by some commentators as being you know sort of Zionist propaganda. Israel is sort of the the nation that is sort of the star seed nation and things like that. So there's there's some you know the pendulum swings all over the place, doesn't it? We also get some interesting information about Atlantis. Uh, Atlantis was um, thriving for a long time. It was a group from originally from Aksu, flourished for thousands of years, uh, ended around 11,000 BCE due to a cataclysmic event. When they ask Tom where Atlantis was located, you know, let's settle the mystery. Atlantis was everywhere. It stretched, quote, from Greece to the Americas. Um, and the, the people were also from the sort of the primary civilization they were from were the Altian civilization. So Atlantis is not the real name. The real name is Altia. And their civilization was very advanced, of course, because all of these civilizations are. And what's interesting is, you know, they, they did stray. They, they did irritate the nine with some of their behavior. And one of the things they did was they misused some of the great medical knowledge they had. And this is, this is weird. Instead of using the great medical knowledge they had to improve their minds, they used it to improve their sex organs. Altian surgery, he explained, was capable of affecting transplants of all the vital organs of the body, even of brains. And those organs that were transplanted were far superior to those that had existed in the physical body. The life expectancy of an Altean who had the best medical care could run into thousands of years. I had to read through that a couple times to make sure it was saying what I thought it was saying, because what I thought it was saying, and I think what it is saying, 
is that with their advanced medical knowledge, um, the Atlanteans or the Altians, sorry, were just spending their time swapping out sex organs. It doesn't specify which sex organs these are. Um, I've got some ideas about what might be the case. Uh, I'm sure you do too. Dot, dot, dot. Suggestive ellipses about the weirdness of the Altian slash Atlanteans. It just seems such an odd thing. And I'm not as up on my Atlantean lore as a lot of people should be, or as a lot of people are, and as I should be. Maybe this is something that is fairly straightforward. Maybe this is something that is is well known in Atlantis. It was the it was the sex organ exchange business that was what spelled the final doom of the Atlanteans, what brought down some sort of wrath or something like that. I, I should probably read my Edgar Casey book about Atlant. Uh, I threw that out. Anyway, um, got rid of it. I, cause I never read it. So yeah, we also learn as we go. Um, and we're almost done with this Holroyd book. We, um, also learn a bit more about the nine, they ask Tom if the Nine are the ultimate source of knowledge, power, and wisdom in the universe, and Tom explains that the Nine together, quote, are what you would call the infinite intelligence. And while there are Nine who guide the entire thing, there are also 24 civilizations. But these 24 civilizations are not the only civilizations. There are 24 heads of civilizations that Tom explains might be compared to Congress, and they are working on the positive side, but you need the negative side to make things whole as well. It's very, very confusing and strange. And, well, for example, uh, Tom explains, quote, all beings and species come from us. Your questions, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Are asked by all. And the answer is that all species and all beings are particles of us. And these souls go through many experiences, many um, incarnations before they reach Earth. But Earth is not as evolved as the other civilizations. It just sort of goes on and on and on in this endless sort of navel-gazing nonsense sounds a little dismissive, but dang, it's rough to get through. So this talk of reincarnation here raises an interesting question, or at least to Andrea, it raised an interesting question. That raises an interesting question, Andrea said. You've told us that after the destruction of Atlantis or Altia, many souls chose to return as dolphins. But did dolphins and porpoises have intelligent souls before that time? And the answer, of course, from Tom is yes. And dolphins have souls that are at different stages of human development. And um, yeah, so the New Age dolphin soul connection comes through. If you ever walked through a mall in quotes, new age store back in the 1990s and early 2000s, back when like the last time I was at a mall, probably um, there's always, you know, weird airbrushed paintings of dolphins everywhere. I don't know. I might be misremembering that. So as we get to the end of Holroyd's book, the author breaks down what may or may not be happening. He's trying to process all of this stuff that he's been exposed to, and he's trying to come up with some possibilities for an explanation. Let us begin with what is probably the most crucial question of all. Who or what is Tom? 
As I see it, there are five possibilities to be taken into consideration. One, Tom is a pure invention, a creation of Andrea, Phyllis, or John, or of the three of them in collusion. Two, Tom is an unconscious invention, a composite created out of information contained in the minds of the sitters by the well-known mediumistic process of withdrawal of such information. Three, Tom is a secondary personality of Phyllis's endowed with psi abilities that takes over when she is in a dissociated state of consciousness. Four, Tom is a spirit, a disincarnate entity with extraordinary powers of invention and cognition. Five, Tom is what he says he is, an intelligent being from another part of the cosmos. The possibility of fraud and invention can, I think, be quite definitely ruled out on the basis of what we now know of the personalities of John, Andrea, and Phyllis, the manner of their coming together, and their sustained commitment and dedication. Some hyper-skeptical readers may not agree, and some, it occurs to me, may even suspect that I have made the whole thing up. But I think that the majority will agree with me that possibility number one can be eliminated. So we are left with two parapsychological hypotheses, and two hypotheses that we may call transcendental, all four of which come down to the basic question of whether Tom exists independently of the three and their shared situation. Holroyd then spends pages and pages and pages going through the history of channeled materials and various esoteric belief systems that have some relation to the things that the Nine says, and at the end of it, he reaches this conclusion. To say the very least, the parallels and correspondences we have noted in the foregoing pages indicate that the Asanin communications are not an isolated phenomenon or the product of somebody's crazed subconscious. They have links with history, with esoteric tradition, and with other contemporary psychic phenomena. Whether they are something more than a remarkable and fascinating psychic phenomenon, whether they really do emanate from an extraterrestrial source, are questions that we should, by all accounts, soon have unequivocal answers to. So the things that were channeled from Tom and the others in Asening cannot be faked or the product of somebody's subconscious because other people have said things like this in the past and there are other people being psychic like this so it all makes sense sure of course we'll know soon enough the uh, unequivocal answers are on their way because either the ship will land or it won't i never noticed it landing but uh i was just a kid toddler so Maybe I missed it. The book ends, literally ends, it's the last thing in the book, with Tom getting one more comment. It is important that it be stated in the chronicle of the three of you that there will be physical civilizations that will come to raise the level of this planet Earth, to bring it out of its own contamination, to purify it, and to prepare the people to keep it in a pure state so that it does not become in a collapsed state for future generations. This is the most beautiful of all the planets that exist in the universe. It has the greatest variety. That is expressed in the book, but it is also important to tell the readers that there is hope for future generations on this planet. For in truth, if this planet may be purified, then it will be the greatest paradise for all souls. It is also important that they understand that each of them is responsible for him or herself, for their neighbors, for future generations, and for the universe. And if they believe that they will have life after their physical death, and they must understand that what they do in this life, they must undo in the next. It is of the greatest importance that they understand the necessity for the purification of this planet Earth, and that they understand, too, that it cannot be done with their technology, for the time is past for so saving it. 
This must be told so that they will not create difficulty for the civilizations that will come. One last pitch for humanity to get its act together. One last instruction, one last chance. But there would be more chances because the nine thing would keep going for a few decades. The lab in Ossining would shut down. Um, Puharik would sort of drift off to other work. But Phyllis Schlemmer would continue, and John Whitmore would continue to work with the nine. And in 1993, a book comes out uh, called The Only Planet of Choice. It's subtitled Essential Briefings from Deep Space. And it's revised in 1994, and that's the version I have. And this is a collection of channelings from the original sort of Ossining period in the 1970s, and also later on up through the late 80s and into the early 90s. In his preface, Sir John Whitmore indicates that he is aware of some developments that have been taking place in the UFO field since the 1970s, and sort of brings things a little more up to date. The Christian view of the coexistence of good and evil may not be too far off the mark, but people often find comfort in a more one-sided interpretation of this concept where extraterrestrials are concerned. While some deify and rush to embrace all forms of cosmic experience to help them escape our material existence, others see all alien acts or contacts as the work of the devil. However, it may not be that clear-cut. Is it not reasonable to speculate that technologically advanced beings might exist in other dimensions? Beings who are not evil, but who regard us as a laboratory of lower life forms for them to experiment upon? We have few scruples about what we might do to mundane animals in the interests of scientific advancement. Might they not do the same? Hence the abductions and cattle mutilations? Whitmore also believes that there is a type of preparation of the human consciousness that is already underway. And we see you know, traces of this, hints of this, in the earlier book with what Tom thought that the, uh, the group should do to help prepare humanity. But Whitmore sees it happening and, and has some specific examples. This book, along with the other books, with crop circles, the new genre of sci-fi films, a few global crises, whistleblowers, paranormal events, controlled leaks, and not-so-controlled ones, are all part of the essential awakening of Earth. That awakening demands that we move beyond the present structures of both science and religion. The challenge for science is that the essence of religion is true. The challenge for religion is that there is but one truth. All that any one religion possesses is a perspective of that truth, and by now a fairly distorted one at that. There is no authority for real understanding but ourselves. We need to be bold, but very discriminating. So, how do we know that there's this preparation of humanity going on through the, uh, the media and the world around them? Well, everything, everything is pointing to the aliens coming. How? Can't tell you. But uh, which new sci-fi movies, tell me which ones, point to one in 1993 or 1994 that you mean, Whitmore, please just give me an example. I would like a footnote. So this book of channeled material, mostly Q&A type stuff, is about three times as long as Stuart Holroyd's book. And there isn't much new information added. It's just talked about in much more detail. So I want to um, hit some high points of some things that I think are interesting before we close this out with a discussion of um, what I hated about the Ancient Aliens episode about the Nine. So here's a question from Andrew. Why are there nine? Andrew asks, 
Why are there nine basic manifestations of, I guess we should use the word God, for lack of a better term? Why nine? Tom explains. I will try to explain it in a manner in which you may understand. Nine is complete. Everything is nine. In your world, you have said seven so many times when everything is truly nine. There are nine chakras, which are the nine principles and nine elements of what you call God. There are nine bands around this planet Earth. There are nine etheric bodies, and the purpose of growing your etheric bodies or going through your transformations and transitions is to attain the nine etheric bodies. Nine is a complete number. It is whole. When you go over a nine, it cancels. It becomes one, and a nine is complete. This does not change. But remember this. We ourselves are not God. All of you and all of us make God. Well, if he was trying to explain it in a way that's easily understood, uh, he failed, at least as far as my tiny mind can comprehend. We also learn a little bit more about Atlantis or Altia, for example, when they talk about other civilizations that are out in space. Who else is there besides the Huva, for example? An example would be the civilization of Altia. As we are in another realm of existence, we depend upon Altia for communicating with you. They guard the body of our being while you are in communication with us, and they provide the technology for us to communicate. Altia was also the head of what you know as the physical civilization that manifested upon planet Earth as Atlantis. There are other civilizations, and there are amongst you incarnate souls from those civilizations who have come to help planet Earth. One of these civilizations, Huva, was the civilization that originally seeded planet Earth, as did some of the others. But Huva reseeded planet Earth on three occasions. Huva is the civilization from which the Hebrews derive, hence the importance of the Hebrews. Huva is the civilization that brought forth the Nazarene. So you see what I mean about not a lot of entirely new information in The Only Planet of Choice compared to the the Holroyd book. The basic storyline is there and it's just being restated in endless, endless detail. Gene Roddenberry shows up in, uh, in this book asking some questions. This is from his time uh, spending time in Ossining, sort of gathering data and, and research and understanding the whole nine concept for the screenplay he was writing. He asks a really, really interesting question. Landings would undoubtedly be judged by humans and, and governments in a variety of ways, which includes the almost certainty that some would view your landings as a threat. Do you have a method of defending yourself from attack? Would you set your phasers to stun, for example? Roddenberry's coming at this sort of from a a, a traditional alien landing point of view. The humans might be threatening. How are the aliens going to deal with this? Tom responds. We wish you to know that we are talking about the civilizations, not us, the Council of Nine. We do not need to manifest in the physical. There would be a method to stop people from attempting to destroy those of the civilizations. It would be done with love and gentleness. Those of the civilizations that are in service to us will not attempt to destroy, nor harm in any manner, any physical being on earth. We will have a way of preventing them from attempting to destroy us, but we would wish not to come without giving some prior knowledge, for otherwise people would begin to believe that we would seek to control them. We have not the desire nor the need to control. We come only to benefit. 
If an Altian were to appear at an entrance of his vehicle and were stepping onto planet Earth, and if there were a group that attempted to destroy that Altian, he has only to hold out his hand in an upright manner, and not in great extension, to bring calmness, and also to render them into a state in which they would not have the desire to harm, and would put down their weapons. Huvids would operate in a different manner. If they were in the same situation, and they came out and raised their arms, those humans with weapons would become totally stationary for a period of time. So there are different methods, but none of these methods would harm a physical being. Now, I want to know the mechanism by which lifting up the hand in various ways causes all these things to happen. I don't know why Tom doesn't want to explain that to us. Also, in keeping with the notion that this is in the early 90s rather than the mid-70s, we have a question that sort of ties into some of those late 80s, early 90s UFO concerns. Is one of the governments of planet Earth working in conjunction with a group from another source, from Reticulum, which is 37 light years from Earth? Are you aware that the government signed a treaty with the Greys? Oh, gosh, we're, we're sort of mixing our, crossing the streams here, aren't we, between our, our paranoid sort of alien takeover fantasies and our relatively sweetness and light New Age channeling fantasies. In any case, here's the answer. That is also within this galaxy. There are government agencies upon this planet Earth that have awareness of other species within your galaxy. There are many. Those within this galaxy could be said to be working within a corporation. If you have a megacorporation which has many divisions within it, then within these divisions there will be units that manufacture or sell or service without necessarily knowing who owns them. But if you go into an individual unit, you would find a manager of that unit. But this person would not be the general manager of the whole corporation. That is the order of the galaxy. Do not limit yourself or tie yourself only to the solar systems of your own galaxy. Way to not answer the question, Tom. We weren't asking about the organization of who works where and how it all's put together. We want to know about the treaty. Tell us about the treaty. He's a little more straightforward, a little bit, when asked what happens with a landing. What would actually happen if the landing took place? What would that look like? A landing would not take place all at one time. It would start, and for nine days, there would be landings taking place all over this planet. There would be a visual landing with many different types of craft. But before we landed, we would radiate out a beam that would nullify the fear in people. Films and books have planted a seed of recognition of us, and people will remember. And this energy, the beam that we send out, will come from this seed energy that is already planted. Sounds like a pretty chill affair. There are other topics covered. There's lots of talk of how aliens seeded the different civilizations. And one thing, one sort of unsavory thing that comes across here is that it's apparently the case that all of the races and cultures on Earth were seeded by aliens except those of Africa. Everybody's got a divine alien spark in them except civilizations from Africa. Yeah. That's about what it sounds like. So one final thing from this book. There is a question from a guy named Charles. And I'm just going to let Charles speak for himself. Masturbation. Is it a normal form of behavior or shouldn't it be at all? Charles, you're in contact with 
the leader of the Council of Nine that controls a vast amount of power from beyond our very comprehension. And this is the question you ask? What is wrong with you, man? Just settle down. Tom has an answer. It is in your world of physicalness, because of the desire and genetic factors within the human body that has been generated down through generations. We have no objection to masturbation, for it was a form of masturbation that seeded the earth, but it spills what is of greatest importance to us. We do not object to the youth if it releases them of pressure within their physicalness, but in older people and those who work in service with us it can be a wastage of energies, which may be utilized otherwise. When it is not utilized in a quality or blending of etherics with one of the other gender, it is not in its best essence. But if it would bring to you the releasing of pressure, then we have no objection. That doesn't seem like the worst response that Tom could have come up with. So, to conclude, the Nine is... What's interesting about it is it gets imbued with a lot of debris based on the fact that Puharik was involved with it. And Puharik had this background, the military and intelligence and, you know, possibly elements of mind control experimentation. If you're doing things that may involve implanting ideas in somebody's head and then you start messing around with people channeling information, that's an interesting connection, right? If these messages had just come to some random contactee in the 1950s or 60s, I don't know if it would have gotten the sort of cultural currency that it has. I certainly don't think there would have been an episode of Ancient Aliens about it. Which brings me to this episode of Ancient Aliens. This is uh, season 11, episode 8, The Mysterious Nine. And it was bad. It, It was bad. It was... It was bad. It was desperately uninformative. It tells the story of how Puharik, you know, was, you know, dealing with all these parapsychologists and psychics and channelers and everything. And then Vinod, Dr. Vinod comes in and channels the nine. And then he sets up a laboratory to channel the nine. And then it's sort of, it doesn't really talk about what the nine channeled to these people. It doesn't really talk about the content. We just go into, could all of the ancient pantheons, that's their pantheologies, pantheons been the nine? Could the nine have been the ancient gods? So we get like 20 minutes of that. And then they spend seriously like 10 minutes talking about Frank Stranges and Valiant Thor. They talk about Valiant Thor and the Stranger at the Pentagon stuff because could Valiant Thor have been an emissary from the nine? to talk to President Eisenhower, and then, then they get the Valiant Thor story wrong. They say that Eisenhower wanted to go along with Valiant Thor, but that the head of the CIA and the Defense Department talked him out of it, when the Valiant Thor story itself sort of explains that this new alien technology would have, you know, undermined the American economy or something, which is a silly sort of thing, but at least, at least they could have stuck to the actual story. So we get 20 minutes of ancient gods, we get 10 minutes of Valiant Thor, and then they bring in Gene Roddenberry. And this is where it just goes off the rails completely, because when they bring in Gene Roddenberry, 
they don't really explain the timeline. Gene Roddenberry met with them to discuss a screenplay. When was this? They don't say. The implication is it's in the 1950s when Puharek set up his lab to, you know, talk to the Nine. And so the impression they give with clips and still shots from the classic Star Trek and with the, the cover page of a script from classic Star Trek, I think it was the episode The Omega Glory, the dots they connect are that Gene Roddenberry got his ideas for Star Trek, just in general, from the Nine, when we know that Roddenberry didn't know about the Nine until 1975, when he got in contact with John Whitmore. So when online you see, well, Gene Roddenberry got ideas from Star Trek from the Nine, they probably got that from Ancient Aliens. So then they go into, well, what specific ideas did Roddenberry get from the Nine? And they say, well, the United Federation of Planets. So then we get 10 minutes of just random generic discussion of galactic federations in UFO stories. We get former Canadian Defense Minister Paul Hellyer, who they keep wheeling out for some reason, saying, well, everybody I've talked to who knows about this says there is a galactic federation. Nobody cares, man. Nobody cares. You're the defense minister of Canada. You probably don't know that much. So it's, it's just... It's just bad, not because, not just because the information was wrong, but also because it just, it wasn't really an episode about the whole nine phenomenon. It was an episode about the stuff every episode of Ancient Aliens is about, because I swear they've got like 15 clips that they keep cycling over and over again. I I hate that show with just a passion. Um, one last note about that. There is a guy online, some guy uh, named Jason Calavito, who reviewed episodes of Ancient Aliens. My God, um, what a what a choice to make for your life. Um, but his review of this episode, he, he reviews them in a deeply, deeply critical manner. He talks about how, um, this is interesting, that the, the sort of idea of the nine is derived from a 1923 adventure novel called the nine unknown and he talks about that a little bit is that where it came from i i don't know but he makes connections to a book called the stargate conspiracy by lynn picknett and clive prince which discusses the nine lynn picknett was featured in the ancient aliens episode and here's a cliffhanger our next episode Next regular episode, we'll discuss the Stargate Conspiracy. Thanks for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social media or email channels, and we'll try to address it on The Saucer Afterlife coming next week. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you.